I'm Stacy Brenner. And I'm Rick Bennett. And, and we, we are, are seatmates. seatmates. We serve together in the Maine Senate. And we sit next to each other in the Legislature's Environment and Natural Resources Committee. So we chat a lot about the issues before us. About how government works and doesn't. And we realized we're on a journey together through policymaking. Stacy is a Democrat and she chairs the committee. Rick is a Republican who once served as Senate President. In the Senate, we learn a lot and hear many stories. We thought we'd like to share them with you. And give you a sense, too, of how your elected representatives tackle issues, debate, and collaborate, and otherwise make policy and law. That's why we made this podcast, Seatmates, and we're so happy you've joined us. Welcome to today's episode, Talking Trash. Stacy, we all seem to generate a lot of trash and so much waste, and this is a policy area our committee, Environment and Natural Resources, has a lot of focus on. As the chair of our committee and as an organic farmer yourself, how do you approach this subject? When I think about our committee work, I often think about this example of what it's like when you walk into the grocery store. So if you could visualize the doors sliding open and you walk in and you're in the middle of the store in the aisle where everything's packaged, our committee needs to manage what happens at the end of the life of all that packaging. Laundry detergent bottles, cereal boxes. Our committee, as you said, deals with the other end of the life cycle for all those things like uh, that we bring home the food and our reusable grocery bags and then all the material that we buy at the hardware store, on Amazon, at Target, things that are sent to us in the, in the mail and through UPS. Any consumable good or building material has a usable life and it needs to be managed in the waste stream. So we know matter can neither be created nor destroyed. So all of that packaging just gets shifted from the store shelf to your home and business and then into the waste stream. And our committee deals with how do we manage that waste stream. So Stacy, the place that you take your trash, do you call it a dump or a transfer station? I call it a transfer station because the dump is the landfill where things go that can't be recycled. Well, here in Oxford County, we usually just call it the dump, <laughs> although the, all the signs say transfer station. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, when I was campaigning uh, last year, one of the few comfortable places to actually see people was at the old standby, the transfer station, the dump. And uh, as we were unloading paper and cardboard and plastics, people really want to know whether all the effort that they go to at separating and flattening and 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 just dealing with all this, the, the, the paper and the cardboard, this stuff, does it really get recycled or not? Where does it actually go? I think that is the question we are going to get to today with two guests. So we're going to dive in. Dumpster diving? <laughs> and we'll be aided by two experts in this area. But first, let's talk a little bit more about the policy history of solid waste in Maine. And I'm going to start by telling you, about the solid waste hierarchy. So in 1989, Maine came up with a solid waste management program that consisted of a hierarchy. So it started with the concept of reduce, so as little waste as possible. Reuse is the second tier. Recycle is the third tier. And what do you do after uh, you can't either reduce the stuff, reuse it, or recycle it? Compost is the fourth tier, and that's dealing with anything that is organic in nature. Then processing and beneficial use, so using the waste to make new products. Uh, waste to energy, burning, trash, incineration. And then the very last rung of the hierarchy is the landfill. 
Your co-chair on the committee, Ralph Tucker, he likes to call this the holy writ of waste management in Maine. Yeah, so Ralph Tucker sent both of us a copy of the solid waste hierarchy very early in the year during our committee work. I put mine on the wall and uh, very proud. To keep us well-trained. That's right. Now, the ugly truth is that back in 1989, which is a third of a century ago, the same year that we enshrined that hierarchy in Maine law, we actually set a recycling goal in Maine of 50%. And today, after a lot of focus and work, it's actually only 36% and declining. And in Maine, every day, 5,000 tons of municipal solid waste is generated, collected, and managed. And it's a network of public and private operations, haulers, landfill operators, waste energy operators, and the list goes on of folks in the private industry involved in managing our solid waste. So let's go straight into our first guests. Okay. The CEO of EcoMaine, Kevin Roach. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you so much for joining us. Could you tell us a little bit about EcoMaine and what you do and the communities that you serve? Sure. Um, EcoMaine is a quasi-municipal nonprofit organization, um, community-owned. We have 71 member communities in southern and central Maine. And really, our mission statement, I think, best describes us. Um, We provide comprehensive, long-term solid waste solutions in a safe, environmentally responsible, economically sound manner. And we're a leader in raising public awareness of solid waste management strategies. And I think that last bit really sets us apart from the rest. We really want to stay connected to our communities because that's where we get really good compliance and participation in the programs that we offer. We have a waste to energy facility that um, processes the non-recyclable fraction of the waste stream. We have a single sort recycling program um, or a facility um, that processes all types of recyclable materials from curbside programs as well as transfer stations. Um, We have a landfill for that material that uh, cannot be recovered in one of the higher rungs of the waste hierarchy, such as ash from the waste energy facility. And again, we have a very aggressive outreach program where we have uh, six folks in the community. Kevin, I know that you serve uh, many of the towns that I represent in the state Senate. And, but, you know, as I visit people at transfer stations, at dumps, they, they, they always ask whether all that stuff that they take the time to separate and dutifully put in the right bins at the transfer station, does it really get recycled? Yeah, we get that question quite a bit. And um, I can assure your listeners that uh, it does get recycled. Now, there's always things that we get in the, in the recycling stream that is what we consider contamination that presents a problem or a challenge to get something recycled. So there are some materials, like if you throw your garden hose in the recycling bin, I can assure you that we're going to have to take that out. Chances are we're going to have to take it out by hand, and we're going to have to throw that away because it wasn't part of the recycling system. But those materials that are dedicated and, and, and identified as a recyclable material are going to market, even in the worst of markets. Can you give us a bit of the state of recycling as you see it for consumer product packaging today? Sure. You know, it's been quite volatile over the last few years. China was the largest buyer of recycled material in the world. And um, when they decided to abandon the market for post-consumer recycled materials, 
um, that are collected that are, uh, you know, popular in today's programs, it really threw supply and demand out of balance. And we knew, we saw this coming. We knew for years this was coming. Probably should have done more. We just weren't sure how serious they were. But they were serious. And, and so when supply and demand got thrown out of balance, the market became very, uh, quite volatile and uh, remains that way today. However, I will say the market has um, really doubled or quadrupled in value from just a year ago. And that's a reflection of, of, you know, the market coming back into balance. And, of course, the pandemic didn't help things for a while there. So who's buying that packaging now? Well, fortunately, more and more um, people closer to home, um, uh, mills and, and processing facilities, are, are um, purchasing that material, which is a good thing. We still export a fair amount of our material. But much of our material is staying here domestically or in Canada. And, you know, keeping it uh, closer to home is is a more sustainable model. So I think that's a good thing Mm -hmm. when it comes to recycling. Uh, Kevin, could you tell us a little bit about your experience? And you have a long experience in this area, but your experience with human behavior in the management of waste. You know, what actually influences people to be more cognizant about the waste they're generating and what they're doing with it? Yeah, Rick, you know what's so fascinating fascinating about this industry is that it affects everybody. I mean, everybody has waste, everybody has recyclable materials, and everybody can participate, um, you know, proactively in these, in these kind of programs. And so, yeah, it really touches everyone. And it is interesting. Um, but the bottom line, you have to make these programs convenient. You don't want to design a program where the 1% or the 10% of the population is going to participate. If you make it too hard, you won't get good participation. And really, it's all about recovery and reducing the amount of waste that we send to our landfills. Landfills are a stored strategy. The waste doesn't go away. It'll be here forever, and forever is a very long time. Have you seen people in the experience that you've had through a fairly long career now changing their philosophy about their responsibility for the waste they generate? You know, it seems people from all walks of life um, really seem to get engaged when it comes to recycling. And we have found recycling participation in our service area is upwards toward 85, 95% um, compliance and and really doing it right. So, you know, for the most part, people want to do it. it, They feel good about recycling. But we we do have some people who want to recycle everything, and we call it that wish cycling. And that means they they just put everything in the blue bin, in in the blue recycling bin, and it may not be recycled. All good intentions, but it really messes up the process. And so if you put things in that are not recyclable, we're going to have to take them out. Can you tell me a little bit about the compostable plastic products and how that affects the recycling stream when they go in? My understanding is that they need to break down in a different, they have a different mechanism for how they should be handled. Right. And that's been a challenge. Um, Some compostable plastic materials are not actually recyclable through the conventional recycling process but may be recyclable through a composting program with uh, things like food waste and yard waste and things that decompose. The problem is they may not decompose at the same rate. So if you're decomposing food waste or leaves, compostable utensil might be compostable, but it may take three or four or five times longer 
than leaves or, or food waste. And I'm sure you can kind of picture that in your mind. And so it, it doesn't, if it's not um, composting at the same rate, it presents a pro- problem and a challenge to the composting facilities um, because, you know, they want to be as efficient as possible. I tried to compost some of that stuff in my compost pile at home. I mean, it's quite large. It's farm, you know, it's a farm scale compost pile on a big pad, but it all came flying out the manure spreader the next year. And I had mm-hmm. to pick it up out of the field. It, it didn't break down. So you could see it. So you yeah. know what I'm talking about firsthand. Totally. Yeah. So when you find that in the recycling bin, that would be considered a contaminant? It would be. And, and most likely it's, you know, we, we try, we only take um, plastics that are containers. Uh-huh. Right. So it has to be con- a container, number one, and um, that is labeled um, with the numbers one through seven. Okay. So um, no with one filmware. exception, and that's um, polystyrene or more commonly known as styrofoam. That's the only plastic that we don't take, um, simply because it's mostly air. And if you can get a whole truck tractor trailer load of, of uh, polystyrene, and it won't weigh anything. So why ship air? Mm. <laughs> Kevin, what do you see as the gold standard for waste management? Well, you know, the waste hierarchy really comes to mind. The waste hierarchy um, has been adopted by the Environmental Protection Agency, by most of the uh, states. Department of Environmental Protection, um, by state law, by the European Union. I mean, pretty much everybody universally agrees with the waste hierarchy, which is very simple. Reduce, reuse, recycle first and foremost, then compost and digestion, then waste to energy, and then landfilling is the bottom rung of that hierarchy. The problem is most of the waste generated in our country is landfill. It's stored in a landfill. And that's because landfilling is cheap. It's really the cheapest way that involves the least amount of effort. You just throw it in a huge pile and it'll stay there forever and nobody has to do anything with it. The problem is it will be there forever and you're deferring the true cost of dealing with that waste to future generations because it's not going to go away. They're going to have to deal with our waste 100 years from now that's sitting in a landfill. They're going to have to deal with it when it starts impacting the environment. So that's, that's the biggest thing is how do we move waste up through the higher rungs of the hierarchy, such as re- reduction and reuse and recycling. And that's going to, we're always going to need landfills, but let's make sure we preserve our landfill space for that material that, that has to go into a landfill. I have a personal question for you before we finish up, Kevin. How does your knowledge of the waste stream affect your shopping habits at the grocery store? Well, it, you can ask my kids, <laughs> and, and they probably can answer that better than I can. You know, I think in general, it, it doesn't impact my purchasing habits. You know, I look for products that are packaged in readily recyclable um, packaging, and that's very important. But, you know, the industry is really responding to that. And what's interesting is the industry is converting all those mills that used to make paper products, writing paper, tablet paper, copy paper, Maybe you remember the old computer printout paper, and some of your listeners might even remember the newspaper. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. That so old those thing. mills are all converting over from paper making to pa- making packaging. Slowly but surely, they're converting over because paper making has pretty much gone um, by the wayside. And so they're betting, they're making huge millions of dollars of investments in these conversions because they're betting that the consumer prefers paper packaging in general over plastic packaging or other alternatives. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for your insights and information today. It's been really interesting, and it's great to have you on Seatmates. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you both about it. 
Stacy, you know, uh, product stewardship is uh, is a topic which is hot in the main legislature and around the world and certainly around the country these days. Uh, but it's not entirely a new idea. In fact, we've had various types of product stewardship requirements and, and regimes in Maine. Can you talk about the history of that? Sure, I'd be happy to. So Maine has a rich history of implementing product legislation that uh, mandates product stewardship. So it started with mercury and batteries to keep those products out of the waste stream and out of landfills because they have there was problems with heavy metals leaching out of the landfill. I think most um, most uh, Mainers are used to keeping their batteries <laughs> separate. That's right. And then there's a paint stewardship program that came about. That's the most recent one that we've put into into play. So you take your paint cans back to the paint store that either have some paint or are empty. Yeah, in fact, right here in Norway, where we're recording, Obishan Hardware takes that stuff right in. I, I took some in a few months ago, and it's, it was very easy. Well, I don't drive up to Norway for that, but I do go to the Obishan in Buxton. <laughs> <laughs> There's an e-waste product stewardship program that takes old cell phones and old computers and manages the batteries inside of those products. And then what most Mainers know about is the bottle bill, which came about in the late 70s, um, and that's for uh, glass and plastic bottles. And that is really kind of, for most Mainers, the original product stewardship plan. Correct. That's right. Well, it's great to have that history because our next guest uh, is an expert at looking at product stewardship plans around the world and uh, through North America and elsewhere. Welcome, Victor Bell from Lorax EPI. You are a lifetime certified packaging professional with more than 25 years experience with environmental issues associated with packaging and products. You're also associated with the Sustainable Packaging Coalition and the managing director for the U.S. of the firm Lorax EPI. Victor, I have a question for you. Is Lorax the same guy I'm thinking of, that fellow from the Dr. Seuss book? It is. It is. Very fitting name for your company. I've, I've been trying to get permission to knit on the Senate floor, which is not allowed in Maine, but then I could knit thneeds for everyone. <laughs> Victor, we're talking today about Maine's uh, waste issues, and uh, you've seen many uh, producer responsibility plans around the world. Can you tell us how they work? Certainly. Um, you've got to remember, they've been around now for 25 25- almost 30 years in some countries. And basically, yeah, they all started in, in, in Europe, at, in, in Germany and France and Belgium, and then quickly went over to Japan and Taiwan. And now we have them everywhere around the world, including new programs in Russia and new programs in China and India. So this is a phenomenon. They all, and for packaging, they all basically work The fact that a producer, um, a producer could be anyone from a a grocery store to a consumer goods company like a Procter & Gamble, Unilever, Johnson & Johnson, or even someone like an Amazon who sells their own products. So on a yearly basis, well, and this also varies from state to state and province to province, either quarterly, monthly, or yearly, but most of them now are yearly, submit a report on the amount of packaging they put on the market. It used to be there was just like five categories. It was plastic, aluminum, steel, glass, and paper. Now, um, in most countries, it's about 15 or 20 categories, like a PET bottle, PET rigid plastic, high density. And then they pay a fee on each of those materials 
based on what it actually costs to manage that material by the country that's met, the, the municipality that's managing it. And they submit that out, and then they pay a fee on those different materials. And what happens is the more easier something is to recycle or the more valuable it is at the end of its life, the less we pay on those particular commodities. So, for example, aluminum. So aluminum bottle, which has very high value at the end of its life, pays for itself in the recycling system. So its cost per gram or ounce is very low, where if you have a polystyrene or black plastic or things that are, are heavily coated paperboard, those cost more to manage, and therefore the fees are higher. Those fees then are collected by a third-party organization, and in some countries there's more than one, but um, most now are going towards the one. And then, then the money is used to either run the recycling programs directly by that third-party organization in a province like British Columbia, soon to be Quebec, or they reimburse the city and town for their costs based on the percentages agreed upon, and then they pay those costs. So therefore, instead of you paying a homeowner paying a bill to collect recyclable or the city and town paying the workers to collect that material, that money is reimbursed and therefore drops the actual cost of the system for the cities and towns. So a bunch of these programs are being considered across the United States now, Maine uh, being one of those places, Oregon, New York. Is the legislation pretty similar, or how do they differ from the EU or Canadian provinces? you got to remember, EU, every country is different. Right. And, okay. same with, and even the Canadian provinces... The Canadian provinces are good in the sense that they all use sort of the same material list, which is really nice, makes it easier for um, countries, for companies to report. We hope that as more and more states pass their bills, that there will become tweaks to these bills in the years to harmonize them, to make it easier for the producers. Mm -hmm. But most of them, yes, Maine selects a a stewardship organization via a RFP process. Oregon, just to the requirement of the, the stewards to find someone to collect it. We, we hope that as they go forward, and we're seeing that in the future now, even in the EU, we're seeing more harmonization of material categories and also more harmonization on how the fee structures work. Victor, uh, you know, much of the opposition to uh, the idea of product stewardship centers around the increased cost or potential increased cost to the consumer. Can you talk uh, about your experience with how costs for these programs have actually played Mm -hmm. out? We actually do the fees for some of the major, you know, the big consumer good form, consumer good companies or the um, supermarket chains or like the largest, we do it for the largest retailer in Canada. So we do it for all of their provinces, but we do it for the other people for everywhere in the world. So some countries we are reporting to 60 different jurisdictions around the world. And basically we find that the costs end up being, I mean, for a a simple, you know, uh, you know, a simple wrapper around a candy bar, it's going to be a fraction of a cent per candy bar. For a very complex package, you know, so if you've got something coming from Amazon, 
and it's got the carved birds outside. And then it's got inside, it's got a, a box, and it's got then a, a bottle in there, and then it's got stuffing material. Yeah, why do you they know, do that, by the way, Victor? Ten, ten, ten bucks, <laughs> that would have cost maybe six cents. Yeah. 20 yeah. bucks. So we're saying most products are a penny or two pennies. It's bigger, you know, the, no, it's a big, Pumpkin um, laundry detergent bottle that may be two or three cents because it so, weighs so much, and that's why people are shrinking them down, making concentrates because it saves them money. We've never seen it average more than a, a, a half a percent, a quarter of a percent of the actual cost. Have you seen across Canada and the EU that producers have chosen? to use materials that either have a higher value at the end of the usable life or that they have a higher recyclability as a result of yeah. extended producer responsibility? Well, we're finding what we're doing, two things we're finding. In Europe now, we have what's called eco-modulation, which means that if you do something to make a product that's not very hard to recycle, there's a big penalty fee on it. Mm. A good example of that is OPEC PET bottle, a white plastic PET bottle or a black high-density bottles. They can't be read by the system, so therefore they charge an extra fee. And we're seeing many of our clients move out of those bad products. We also see that a lot of countries have a limit on how much coating a paperboard can have, a certain percentage, and therefore they are now keeping under that percentage. So yes, they're looking at that, and they also look at what it costs. In reality, most companies do not associate these costs with, co- with COGS, cost of goods, which as more we work with them and we give them and, and we actually can tell them the actual cost for every SKU they put on the market. And some of our clients have over a million SKUs. They then select the ones that are most costly and look working at redesigning some of them. Yes. So, Victor, you know, here in Maine, we've got this uh, this bill, which is about to become law, knock on wood. And some of the businesses are, are wondering what is the impact for their own brands, for their own enterprise. What's the best way for a business to take a look at the Maine law and figure out what their what the cost might be for them? Well, if it's a, if it's a relatively small company, in fact, I think a couple of them have come to me and we've actually showed them what their total cost would be if it was Quebec, you know, what it would be the same as Quebec and all that. It's simply by, you know, it's easy for a company that has a re- relatively limited supply. You know, it, it, you know, oh, we only make uh, 20 SKUs, and those SKUs are all PET bottles or, or plastic bags or whatever. We can easily, you know, Apple, Apple, um, um, bags for 20 pounds of apple or cider containers, um, we can easily t- estimate their cost. Or, you know, or like if it's a, a brewery and they have six-pack containers and things like that, you can easily come up because we can show what those fee structures for the different material categories are right now in any country in the world, and we can use those as a model that's closest to Maine to tell them what it actually would cost them. A lot of the ones that we've actually talked to, and we're actually doing this for a lot of the very big brands too, because we have all their data in our database, what it would cost them. And most of them are surprised that the amount is 
relatively low. I mean, if you're a P&G or a Unilever who put a lot of commodities in the market in, in a big country, you may pay a lot of money, but you're putting a lot of products on the market. In most cases, it's very it's very low, and in, and as, especially for people like uh, pharmaceuticals, where a product is you know twenty five dollars or fifty dollars, and the fee is a penny, it really is relatively inconsequential. Victor, how close are other states to enacting these larger product stewardship programs? Oregon is as has passed, it just passed the, the Senate in Oregon, um, or the Assembly, I'm trying to remember which one. It passed one house last earlier this week. Um, we expect to see that one go forward. It was a close vote. It was, it was, a, it was a Senate. It was a very close vote, but it passed. But the House is more on um, liberal learning, leaning, so we think it's, it's going to, and the governor is in favor of it, so we think that will be the next. But then we think a cascade will happen with, you know, New York, most all the action is West Coast, Northeast. Okay. That's where all, all the action is. And we also would like to see when these programs go, almost sometimes the same stewardship organization run multiple programs would be very good. Thank you so much, Victor, for spending some time today sharing your thoughts with us about product stewardship and your expertise on the subject matter. We're really grateful and we hope we hope to see this bill through. Yes, thank you for your help, Victor, and your insights and expertise. And I would like to thank the two of you for working together on a bipartisan measure. I like that. <laughs> now we need more. We need more. You know, and I'll tell you also when I went and testified, not testified, where I was invited up to talk to the Joint Committee. I was very impressed with the with the with the main legislature. Oh, wonderful! Thank you so much for that. Thank you, Victor. Appreciate your time today. So kind of lost in this whole debate, Stacey, is, is you know, who's paying for all this stuff? And we get, we get, uh, we think about the waste going through. But right now in Maine, it is the property taxpayer who is bearing the brunt of the costs for recycling and disposing of all the wasted packaging, the corrugated cardboard, the, the, the boxes, and the material that Victor spoke about that's constantly coming at us in the mm-hmm. mail and uh, off the grocery store shelves. And so main property taxpayers are paying for the cost of recycling that. But we have been working on a solution. We have a bill in front of us that has passed both the House and Senate. It's on the appropriations table, which is a cute term, meaning it's waiting for funding. Uh, it needs two years of funding, and then it will self-fund. And it will produce income from the fees that producers pay in to the program for the cost of managing the waste stream for the packaging of their products. So that administrative cost in the in the plan before the main legislature is part of the overall cost, but most of the money is not for administration of the program. Most of the money will be going directly, as Victor was saying, on a yearly basis to the municipalities based on their costs, their actual recorded, reported and auditable costs of recycling the material that uh, it, that it's covered. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been an honor to work with Representative Nicole Grahowski on this bill. She's put a lot of effort and energy into it. And it's, as you said, it looks like it is, uh, it's on the ro- road to passage, and it does mimic what other jurisdictions, if not in the U.S., 
are doing, but certainly around the world. Can you tell us a little bit about the details of the bill? Sure. So one of the things I think that's most important about the bill is that it is really targeted at larger branded products. So there are a few places in the bill where we've we've tried to help main small businesses to be exempt from the program. So it doesn't kick in until you've hit $5 million worth of gross revenue. And you're exempted from the program if you have less than a ton of packaging, perishable foods, and all frozen blueberries. Right. And this is this program, by the way, doesn't involve packaging between businesses, you know, business to business uh, sales. This is just direct to the consumer. And it's not if you're a retailer, it doesn't cover you unless you have your own branded product on your shelves that you're selling. Like Amazon's branded products would need to be covered by Amazon paying into the program. And uh, we heard from Victor about the cost. But one of the one of the buzzwords that we've heard bandied about uh, in the halls of the legislature and elsewhere is trying to call this bill a packaging tax. But we've heard from Victor that the costs here are minuscule, sometimes even inconsequential, it was his term. Less than a penny for a wrapper on a candy bar. And other, other jurisdictions, as he said, don't, don't really, uh, haven't seen the costs escalate and they've seen improved recycling. In fact, that many of the jurisdictions that have adopted extended producer responsibility programs like this one have seen their recycling rates skyrocket and they've gone up above even 70 percent, seven zero percent. The point that he made that I think was the most poignant was that producers tend to increase the recyclability of the packaging that they're using in order to play a larger role in the program. So it's an exciting new program, and I think it will shift costs from property taxpayers to the people who are responsible for producing the packaging, and that's a good thing. But it's going to take a little while for the program to kick in and actually get up and, and moving. Do you think you'll bring champagne to your dump when EPR <laughs> is implemented I'm and just have a little toast I'm just happy with to the hear, dump guys? I'm just happy to hear you call it a dump. <laughs> So, Rick, tell me a little bit about what's happening in your district this summer. Anything uh, fun? Oh, all kinds of stuff. It's fun and happening in Western Maine, across Oxford and Cumberland counties here. In fact, there's an event coming up very soon, the, the Ossipi Fair is restarting like many agricultural fairs across the state. They were closed down last year due to the pandemic. This year, uh, our first one in western Maine is the Ospie Fair in Hiram, Maine. It's running July 8th through the 11th. There's so many activities going on there. Road races, tractor shows, car shows, agricultural shows. I mean, there'll be lots of fun and games, dunk tanks. Maybe you'll come up and sit in the dunk tank. And um, uh, <laughs> but and also so um, I'm excited, too, to see Deer Trees Theater in Harrison, which is this magnificent kind of open. It's not totally open air, but it's a lovely theater in Harrison, Maine, in the woods. And it's 85 years old this year. And they have a really terrific program of music and comedy and a bunch of shows all throughout the summer. I just bought tickets to uh, listen to a, a young crooner uh, in a couple of weeks at, at, uh, at Deer Trees Theater. So I'm really looking forward to it. And, of course, uh, you've got a lot going on in your district, too, down in Scarborough and Gorham. I think some people might call you a young crooner. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, yes, we have Summerfest uh, in Scarborough at Memorial Park, August 20th. There'll be fireworks and music and food trucks. And then we always have um, Farmer's Market happening on Saturdays in Gorham and on Sundays in Scarborough. And my favorite fair, which isn't in my district but covers all of Maine, is the MAFCA, Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association's Common Ground Fair, which will be up in Unity, Maine at the end of September. We were sad to not have... Uh, an in-person fair last year, but we're really thrilled it's going to happen this year. And and links to uh, find out about all of these events are available at our website, seatmatespodcast.com. Next episode, Trails and Rails. We're going to have a discussion about rail lines and trails on rail lines when we get together next time. Thank you. It's a great new topic and one very timely. And I'd like to say thank you to the Bennett Radio Group, no relation, and particularly producer Mark Turcott. And if you want further information, please visit us at seatmatespodcast.com.